You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And Neil, uh, AI Stats has just passed us, and, and you had some, some interesting papers that caught your eye there. Can we talk about them? Yes. Now, I couldn't make it. It was in Japan, which is exciting in the base case because it's great to be having major conference in Japan. I should also say that AI Stats is kind of my favorite conference because AI Stats, it to me, is the conference. I mean, it's it's always had an excellent balance of um, people who have a bit more statistical probabilistic thinking, machine learning people. Historically, and maybe this is changing now, there was this period uh, where people would only accept papers in Europe if they were extremely technical. And AI stats has been much more accepting of interesting ideas. I think some of my best papers are in AI stats and some of my favorite papers are in AI stats. So it was I was, I was scanning through, through the magic of uh, the modern interweb, the proceedings there. In fact, I, I, I helped publish the proceedings on PMLR. And one paper that caught my eye that I'm excited to see there is um, Fisher Information and Natural Gradient Learning in Random Deep networks. Dig into that for me. Fisher information and natural gradient learning in random deep networks is work from Amari, Karakida and Oizumi and they're based in uh, Japan, Riken and uh, Tokyo. So why do I like this catch my eye? Well number one Amari is one of the godfathers of the field, and I'm not sure how people, the extent to which people are aware of that. So I have wonderful memories of going out with Amari's he's you know sort of a mainstay of uh, uh, machine learning research in Asia. Um, and many of uh, the earlier Chinese researchers, before there was much going on in China, came through his lab. And I have wonderful memories of going out for lunch once with his uh, group to have sushi when we were uh, in Europe, was in Vancouver. That wasn't the reason specifically, but what Amari is well known for is introducing the concept of information geometry here. And, and why I was excited about this paper is I, I mean, it, it feels it's like, you know, us old farts, we're sort of like we're hearing the tunes that were played in our youth again. And, and you know, I think uh, I'm hoping that the youngsters are going to pick up on them and start running with some of the ideas. So what is information geometry? I mean, I'm not a deep expert, so I'll just give some intuitions around uh, what's going on here. So people might be familiar with the curse of dimensionality. I think you have to be very wary of that as a term. So the notion of the curse of dimensionality is if, let's say, I have features which are independent, and that's super important. Everyone glosses over that. So we're going to start, let's not forget features that are independent. And so if I sample features to input to my learning algorithm independently from, say, a Gaussian distribution or any distribution this works for, then as I increase the dimensionality, if I compute the distance between points from my data set, as you increase the dimensionality, the distance increases. But if I scale down by, if I scale down so it doesn't increase as I increase uh, dimensionality, all points become equidistant from one another. So it meaning that if we were to live in a sort of very, very high dimensional space, all objects would be, if you're a pessimist, equally far apart. If you're an optimist, equally close. And this, you'll see this all over textbooks and statistics and machine learning as this is why high dimensional methods can't work, blah, 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 blah. Um, and of course, it comes from the days when before people were able to test empirically high dimensional methods. In, in practice, high dimensional methods do work and the curse of dimensionality rarely exists in, the, in that pure form. And the reason is because features rarely, if ever, independent. Mm, got it. Okay. So it hinges on the independence of the features from each other. It hinges on the independence. So if if the the height and if features are height and weight, they're correlated. And and what's going on actually, and and you can you can test this with sampling. If you start correlating things in that, then the effective dimensionality of that data set, in terms of the fact that things aren't independent, uh, starts to um, come down. Now, interestingly, in high dimensional spaces such as parameter spaces of neural networks. My intuition is if this sort of cursor dimensionality thing really existed, that would be a very good thing. And indeed, maybe that's one reason, intuitive, no evidence for this, you know, maybe someone else has evidence for this out there, why deep neural networks train well, because they have such high dimensional spaces that the maybe you get some of these effects coming out. If you're in spaces where the parameters are strongly correlated with each other, they're very, very complex. So, so they end up um, 
exhibiting this sort of uh, what information geometry and, and other methods uh, sort of look at, which is that um, there's a structure to the space. There's a local structure. So if that's the best way of, sort of putting this is that not distances in all directions in different parts of the space aren't the same anymore. Euclidean sort of understanding of distances doesn't really work. So by analogy, if we think of if we think of a map of the Earth, once we project the map from the globe to a flat point and we draw the sort of flight path of a plane, or in in modern parlance, you download flight radar twenty four and and look. Why do the planes keep flying these big curves? Is it because they're going up in the sky? Yeah, it's not. It's because they're they're operating on the globe and so they're existing in a different geometry. And the the, the Euclidean the Euclidean approximation that says oh that should be isn't working because there's a mapping from that globe to the two dimensional space we're looking at. So things like gradient descent are um, taking gradients which are locally valid and if the whole space was Euclidean and flat like that, following the gradient would be fine. But what natural gradient methods and indeed um, second order methods are trying to do is to get a sense of what the natural form of that space are, the natural gradients, by thinking of the space as a Riemannian manifold. And that's got a lot of interesting mathematical history. I think going initially back to Gauss, who studied it, my understanding is because he was interested in maps. He was, as a mathematician in the 19th century, he was being asked to create maps. So he got interested in the mathematical side of it and going from the sort of how do you create a map? And I can't remember the name of the theorem. It's called like the marvelous theorem or something like this. And I can't remember that specifically due to Gauss. The, the, the generalization is Riemann. Gauss, I think, was aware of this theorem and never wrote it down. Both Gauss and Riemann were these characters that um, they knew stuff, but unless they'd sort of really got the final, final version, they didn't publish it. And so, and Riemann's notes, a lot of his notes were thrown away, unfortunately. So they didn't have archive. So, so like, this is the opposite. They're the opposite of the modern era. It's like they didn't like think of something and then immediately get it on archive because they thought someone else is going to think of it quicker because I guess printing was more expensive. So they didn't want to print the thing until it was definitiveness, I presume. So um, I think Gauss didn't write this down, but, it, but it's often accredited to him. But that's another weird phenomenon. Anyone famous, rich gets richer. The theorem sounds way cooler if you say Gauss came up with it than if you say Bob Higgins. So Bob Higgins realized that um, you could represent um, these sort of geometries by looking at curvature-related entities, so Hessians. And in this case, the Fisher information that's mentioned here is actually the expectation of the Hessian of the log likelihood. And instead of following um, the gradients directly, you use something that looks somewhat akin to Newton's method, where you follow something which in natural gradients is uh, given by the sort of inverse of the Fisher information times the gradient. And that gives you the, the challenge you have here is that the space is sort of changing correlations in in a complex nonlinear model like a neural network if it's a linear model actually you can write down what these correlations are quite simply and they are globally valid and that's so that's a sort of flat surface in these uh, neural network models the nature of the curvature or the fissure information changes as you move through parameter space. Now, second-order optimization methods, which were all the rage when we did batch things like conjugate gradients, limited memory BFGS, quasi-Newton methods, they try and approximate the local curvature with Hessian methods. Natural gradients is doing something else. It's trying to get an estimate of this Fisher information. It's typically too hard to sort of compute exactly, but it's trying to get an estimate of this Fisher information, the inverse of this Fisher information, and use that in estimating the direction of travel at any given time. Now, Amari's work on this goes back sort of um, 21 years, but this paper, he's looking at um, deep neural networks with it. And why I'm excited about that is I hope that the work is going to bring the attention of these methods back to sort of a new generation of researchers and i'm sure they'll they'll find it as inspiring as i do it, it's it's not simple stuff it's complicated stuff but learning about it helps you with your intuitions in optimization spaces and this this paper is even computing by the way hessians in neural networks is non-trivial it's something that my phd supervisor wrote a paper on 
way back exact computation of the Hessian. We used to approximate it. But they're, here they're looking at the structure of what that Fisher information matrix was. And, and to give you an idea how important this can be, there's a nice example was work which um, Bell and Sejnowski on ICA, that's Terry, uh, our Terry and Europe's Terry, on independent component analysis, um, which is a sort of linear model. So you'd think you wouldn't need this stuff. But th this is going way back, I think, to the 1990s again, or maybe the early noughties. Independent component analysis, the first algorithms, uh, you know, the latest algorithms, quite different. They really struggled to optimize. They fixed it by descending their natural gradients. And, and the reason they struggled to optimize is in that case, there's a sort of, you get to one version of the minima quite quickly, which is something that looks like principal component analysis. And there's a lot of interesting proofs around. And principally, PCA is quite easy to find. You can even find that directly. But to find the independent components, you have to apply this sort of, this rotation within that PCA space of the components to find the independent components. And there's proofs around that. That rotation is like traveling around in a circle. And traveling around in a circle is is a real nightmare for gradient or um, coordinate ascent methods, which is the sort of thing people were trying. It's a sort of nightmare scenario. So even something as simple as a circle, getting the natural gradients in gives you much, much quicker convergence. To the extent that if you don't use natural gradients, you will think you've converged when you haven't, and you won't have accurate independent components. Like, so your convergence goes so slow that even you think you've got tight convergence criteria. Another, um, there's a really interesting discussion to this by Andrew Fitzgibbon in doing something that's close to my heart, which is Gauss's, and this is something Gauss did do, fit of the orbit of Ceres and his extrapolation of that orbit. You can imagine that's got elliptical effects in it. And Andrew Fitzgibbon talks about the challenges of actually making that fit. And this is a fit he was doing in like 1800 when he was 23 with no computers. So, and, but that's another example, even like fitting these ellipse examples, where if you don't have the right algorithm, your convergence is so slow um, that you think you've converged before you have. So the, these methods are super important. Uh, the second order methods or methods where you actually take the geometry of the space you're optimizing over, or as Amari would refer to it, the information geometry are super important. And this paper talks about those methods in, I think, fully connected deep neural networks. And it talks about what the structure of the Fisher information is. And uh, I think it's a great introduction to some of those ideas because Amari has a number of citations to the older literature that I think is well worth reading to just, just catch on the, up on this general area. Even if you don't work in it specifically, it may give you ideas about how to improve your own algorithms. Yeah, it never hurts to help sharpen your intuition, right? Yes. Absolutely. Well, we will have a link to the paper on our website, thetalkingmachines.com, and also the rest of AI Stats so that you can explore the other things and perhaps find new ways in which these ideas disseminated throughout the conference yourself. So, Neil, there were some other things at AI Stats that really caught your eye. Give me a rundown. What else were you excited by? So one other paper I, I wanted to mention, and uh, I have to declare personal interest because both authors have uh, at some point worked in, with me in the past, and they're both extremely diligent, um, well-calibrated researchers. And, and, and that's kind of why I, uh, the paper caught my eye. So there, there's a little lesson that if you are a diligent, well-calibrated, people do look out for your work. And uh, this is unbiased, implicit variational inference, ironically. <laughs> you just thought I was biased towards You're it. You're biased towards um, the unbiased, implicit variational inference? That's by Michalis Titsias and Francisco uh, Ruiz. And this paper... Why I would recommend taking a look at this paper is, is as I say, I, I just, I really love the way uh, Michalis and Francisco have put it together. Not just, not just the ideas that they're using. And I kind of, I must admit, I expected this pre-read just because I know, I know the nature of the pair of them. You know, even if you don't read the whole paper, I would just go uh, to section three, the related work. And, you know, they've got the sort of full list of, uh, you know, in a uh, half page of what's been going on in this area, which is an area that's very close to my own interests, but uh, it's been moving so fast that I would say I'm not on top, as on top of it as I'd like to be. And, and you sort of see that in the related work uh, section, which starts out with sort of citing papers that I know and understand very well, such as 
papers by Lawrence Saul and uh, Mike Jordan and Zubin Garamani and Mike Jordan. And then it's just a list of 2016, 17, 18, 2019. <laughs> so here's another paper adding to that. This particular paper is about implicit variational inference, which is where your variational approximation. So variational inference is this approach to Bayesian inference where we attempt to compute the Bayesian posterior. And we attempt to compute, historically, variational always implied that we were converting an integral into an optimization. Bayesian inference relies on this integral to compute the posterior, and that's normally intractable. And, and one of the physicists' tricks that we borrowed as a community is, and actually Lawrence Saul was instrumental in bringing across, he was originally a physicist, a statistical physicist when he was at MIT, is, is variational inference, which is to sort of convert the integral into an optimization, because optimizations are often easier than integrals. So you, you normally can't do this without introducing some form of approximation. And the, the variational approximation is one that um, where we try and minimize the KL divergence between the true posterior, KL divergence sometimes called cross entropy, it's an information theoretic measure, and uh, our approximate posterior. And that leads to a lower bound on the log likelihood. Now, that's the sort of background. There's a number of different approaches. And, and I think um, actually Michalis himself, one of the co-authors of this, is, is an instigator of, of a new revolution where within the variational optimization, you use some stochastic approximation. So you, I think it's called doubly stochastic inference because you're using some stochastic approximation to estimate some of the integrals you need. And, and that, along with automatic gradient descent, has led to some pretty interesting, complex, variational posterior approximations that people are applying across different such models, such as variational autoencoders. Now, why this one caught my eye is because what they're aiming to do is to use implicit variational inference. So implicit is where you don't explicitly represent your variational approximation, perhaps with a probability distribution form, but you may represent it by um, a sort of a, a model where you're sampling from a density and placing that sample through, for example, the neural network. It's a common approach and one they use here. So you end up with a very complex variational posterior, but one that you don't have an explicit representational form for. And in this paper, they're looking at, um, so they're not the first people to work on that type of distribution. They're showing an approach where they can show that they are minimizing, this is why I say it's unbiased, not an approximation to the so-called evidence lower bound, a term introduced by David Bly's lab to sort of represent the variational lower bound. They're genuinely minimizing the, the real KL divergence between the true posterior, stochastically and the, uh, their approximation, whereas previous approaches have had to make a further approximation. And I think, well, I, I'm excited by that. I'm, I must say I'm not steeped enough in the, uh, you know, you could do an entire talking machines purely on papers in variational inference. It would be talking variational things. <laughs> yeah, talking variationally. Talking uh, uh, var variation machines. I don't know. You know, I have this thing. I realize, you know, as, as you go on in your career and you're made responsible for more things, you just understand less about more to the point that I sort of think that surely, you know, you know, the, the, and I always think of Jeff Hinton talking about deep models and saying, as you go up the hierarchy, you get more and more abstract in your feature representations. And it's like, oh, my God. So you just in the end, you know, nothing in the end, you know, nothing. You know everything about, you know, nothing about everything. So I, I'm on that convergence. So take everything I say with a pinch of salt. Occasionally I can dive deep and say complex things about Koleski decompositions. But the truth is, I'm just tending towards, you know, I even thought, you know, there was used to, in, in Europe back in the day when we used to talk about graphical models all the time. I, I can't remember who it was, but someone had, like they had one of these graphical models, hierarchical things, and the node at the top they referred to as God. And I think, well, by the time you get up to that node, you're responsible for everything. You must genuinely have flat knowledge. You know, you just must know everything you must know nothing about everything. I'm omniscient, but I know nothing about all the things. Because how could you? Right. No, I guess that's what omniscience is. It's like knowing. It's just nothing. Omniscience is knowing. It's like, yeah, it's the omniscience same level for is everything. oblivion. 
And it's like, oh, that's why he's not answering my prayers. <laughs> Because he's responsible. Maybe it's responsibility without power. It's that old problem. Uh, You're responsible for everything, but you don't know anything about it anymore. No, no, no. Yeah, Yeah, so not that I I don't want to conflate that and say that I'm approaching that level, but I'm headed, you know, I I sometimes. So anyway, so on the, I, I can't say whether this is, you know, my sense is, you know, I'm just working on the people I know. I love the way they've written the paper. They seem to be covering large parts of the field. Apologies if your very important paper isn't covered by their paper. They're giving a great overview, and I really like the sound of, of, of their result. So um, it just caught my eye. I enjoyed uh, reading it and using it as a way of catching up with some of the latest thinking in that very rapidly moving space. Fantastic. Five papers for Neil Lawrence on uh, <laughs> implicit variations. Please, can someone just write a guide to machine learning to me now? That's the sort of thing I need. I need a guide to the machine learning community. What's going on? Oh, no, Neil. I think the Uroboros loop is is closing. We're just going to oh. get someone to write a field guide for Neil Lawrence for the machine. Sometimes I just persuade it. No, don't worry. It's all just the chain rule. That's what I say to myself. That's how I sleep at night. That's fine. That's it's how fine. I sleep at night. It, it, fundamentally, it's just the chain rule. Just tell yourself that. There's actually, I haven't read it in a long time, but when you are in this state, for those of you that are in this state, one of the wonderful things you can do is read Feynman. Not because not because of the woman we all have of this sort of lord of all these things and massively capable person i need to go back i need to dig it out and one of his books he talks about getting to that point where he felt so far from the technical side and that he basically thought his career was over and i think i think his sister told him oh shut up just sit down and really focus on it for a couple of nights and the, the, the end of the story is something like that and that's when he came out with fire and diagrams or something that's when he came out with x you know that actually he hadn't sort of lost it so if i had a sister then 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 i would be fine unfortunately neil is taking applications for a sister <laughs> <laughs> or a field guide Yes, field guide or a sister. <laughs> but the, the the British book of machine learning spotting algorithms, the spotter's guide to ML algorithms. That's what you need with a sort of picture of the algorithm closely related to the lesser spotted GAN, the great Griebled GAN. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's distinguished by its uh, has, uh, speckled has neck. Been seen and by, it's uh, frequently occurs at ICLR, but has made certain appearances during NURIPS. <laughs> In 2017 and 2018, we expect to see it. We expect to see a huge migration in 2019. Found mainly in Asia, but known to migrate towards uh, Canada during the Europe <laughs> right, season. Yeah, exactly. That's oh, all I need. Perfect. Excellent. Yeah. Well, if if someone can write that book, we will put it on our website. <laughs> um. We will have a link to unbiased implicit variational inference and other papers from AI stats so that you can explore and find out what's interesting for you on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's guest on Talking Machines is John McAuliffe. He's CIO of Volion. And when we got a chance to talk with him way back at ICML, we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Well, I can start back in first year of college. I'd been an exchange student in Germany for a year before that. And so I I started off uh, at Harvard as sure as only an 18-year-old can be that I was going to go into the Foreign Service, mm. uh, do diplomacy or international relations. That is a big difference yeah. from machine learning yeah. and computer science. Yeah, that plan survived one semester of contact with government courses which don't have any right answers ever. No. Uh, and it turns out that I had also been a fan of math and science, although it wasn't a big focus for me mm-hmm. in high school. And I'd always loved kind of playing around with computers and typing simple programs in, although I had never spent any real time on it. So I thought I would just take a computer science course more or less because I was out of ideas. <laughs> um, and so I took uh, CS51, which is now I think maybe the biggest and most popular course mm-hmm. at Harvard. Yep. Things were different in 1991. <laughs> um, More seats in the lecture hall. But I can tell you that uh, I was totally hooked by the end. And so I decided to do computer science uh, and eventually applied math. So I did a combined bachelor's and master's nice. in CS and applied math. Very cool. 
And around uh, the end of my my four years, I began to get really interested in probability and statistics mm -hmm. uh, and stochastic processes. And so I started to sort of move more in that direction. And by the time I was finishing and looking around for a job, I was pretty sure that I wanted to go to graduate school in statistics, but I had a, a real boatload of student debt and I actually wanted to be try to get rid of it before I went to graduate school. So I was fortunate enough to, to get a job offer from a place called D.E. Shaw, mm -hmm. which is now uh, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. It's a, just a giant enterprise. Back then it was, uh, you know, it had employee count in the hundreds. It wasn't, it wasn't just a startup, but it was full of smart and interesting people who I thought were kind of like-minded and they were working on really hard prediction problems and optimization problems. Um, and it seemed like it would be fun to live in New York and think about those things. So I, I took that job and I was in New York for about three years, three and a half years. Mm -hmm. Then my GREs were expiring, and I did not want to take them again. So I applied to graduate school. An excellent uh, motivator. Yes, uh, it really was that. That was the reason. And I, it, it's also the case that the more I worked on those problems, the more I realized that the really good kind of answers to the questions I was thinking about, I was not going to understand with an undergraduate mm -hmm. education. Mm -hmm. I was going to have to go to graduate school. Hmm. I was, again, very lucky and ex got an offer uh, in the Berkeley PhD statistics program. So I took that. I deferred for a year to go to Amazon and I actually worked on recommender systems back in 1999 at nice. Amazon, Very cool. Uh, which was uh, kind of an unknown field, largely unknown field at the time. And I did that mainly for a, a change of pace in the sense that uh, I wanted to work with some data that was really unlike financial data. Before mm -hmm. I went to graduate school, I thought it would you know, maybe be a bit broadening. So I did that. And then I went to uh, Berkeley Statistics about two years before I got there, a guy named Mike Jordan had left MIT and come to Berkeley and was kind of jointly appointed in computer science and statistics. And he, uh, he really seemed to have embraced the idea that there were interesting things to think about kind of where computer science and statistics were meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and that was something that I had gotten very interested in when I was working at D.E. Shaw. Uh, I ended up having him as my PhD advisor, and I sort of spent five years actually thinking about biology, high throughput biology problems, and also about machine learning, kind of large scale machine learning theory and methods, two separate kind of threads yeah. of stuff I was doing. So my, my thesis was about applying what are called graphical models to the problem of looking at the genomes of many species all at the same time hmm. and finding the, uh, the common sort of gene based genetic code. Yeah. yeah. So it turns out that, um, one of the one of the biggest signals that that you can take advantage of when you're looking for which regions of a genome actually have some function mm -hmm. is to find the corresponding regions in other species mm. and see whether they've had uh, a lot of mutations or very few. Ah. If they've had very few mutations, then selection is acting on them. This is probably and, something you need for all of your legs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and selection only acts on the stuff that matters, right. as you're saying, right. legs, et cetera. Right. Uh, so this is, this is actually a big win in terms of improving what, what, what's called functional annotation of mm -hmm. genomes. I spent a lot of time working on that problem and kind of related problems in genomics and in uh, microarray analysis. And then I was... Uh, in touch with a former colleague of mine who had become a, a close friend, Michael Karatanov mm -hmm. from D.E. Shaw. He had left Shaw um, a little bit after I joined. We only worked together for less than a year. He had been there for several years already. But he had done a Ph.D. before me in machine learning mm. in the 80s at Stanford. So he was a hardcore pack learning guy and had some really uh, beautiful results in, nice. in, in that area. But he saw that the internet was going to be a thing in 1996. Prescient. Excellent. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so he left to do um, internet startups in Silicon Valley. And he had family in Berkeley. So mm -hmm. we were in touch uh, while I was a graduate student from 2000, 2005. Mm -hmm. And around the end of my graduate program, he and I started to talk about some problems that we had confronted at you know working in finance that didn't seem to have very satisfactory solutions mm -hmm. at least that I had known about but you know how those problems might be amenable to some of the ideas that were more contemporary mm -hmm. in statistical prediction and statistical machine learning that I had you know, kind of lately been thinking about and, mm -hmm. and telling 
Michael about since he was kind of out of academia. So we thought it would be interesting just kind of on a part-time basis to get some computers and do some data analysis and, and see if any of these ideas were uh, actually had any merit. I went on the academic job market. I became a professor in the statistics department at, Penn, at University of Pennsylvania. He continued to be the CEO of his firm and with another partner who worked on software engineering, we, we sort of examined these ideas. And around the beginning of 2007, we, we felt that we had all the ingredients in place if we were going to try to build a firm. And so it was really time to stop tinkering with it and actually make a decision to pursue it or to set it aside. Uh, and then I had to make, you know, very difficult choice because I do love many things about being an academic, you know, the working with talented uh, intellectuals and supervising bright students, uh, writing papers, editing papers, the, the scientific freedom. These are all yeah. things that mattered a lot to me. You know, I had spent several years in industry building large-scale systems that actually had to run mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. at scale and, um, you know, couldn't be prototypes, couldn't be betas, really had to be kind of robust, polished and, yeah. and systems. And I got a, a really kind of singular pleasure out of working on those things. Uh, and, you know, incentives in academia are not such that you uh, you could get any benefit from that right. kind of polishing, right. really. Right. right. And so very torn, but... I, in the end, I felt like it would be kind of more exciting and, and more difficult and, and more fun for me personally mm -hmm. to try to go for it with, with Michael and, and colleagues and, and try to build a business. So uh, I took leave from Penn. I moved back to Berkeley. We formed the company, Bolion. This was kind of spring of 2007. Mm -hmm. it, we spent about a year getting everything set to have a production trading environment, getting all the systems into a production quality state and then kind of raising money, et cetera. And we started trading uh, in the fall of 2008, in the height of the financial crisis, a week before Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Oh, fantastic. So it's it, something you learn in this business is that it's really important to have kind of a quiescent market environment mm -hmm. to kind of calibrate the simulations that you've done against live production. So, our, right. you know, our timing was stellar. <laughs> Um, to say the least. But it, it all worked out. We've been trading ever since. And so I ended up resigning from Penn. Mm -hmm. uh, sadly, I, I can't say enough good things about that statistics department. Absolutely brilliant people and a, and a kind of a fantastic collegial culture. Mm -hmm. I, I visited a lot of departments and I just, it really stood out as a wonderful, wonderful place. But, uh, you know, I said farewell. Um, and then I, in 2012, uh, in, in the summer, I started an adjunct professorship in statistics at Berkeley. Hmm. So uh, where I am now is I spend the vast majority of my time at Volion, but I also have, um, I teach one course a year. I teach uh, statistical modeling to the incoming stat PhD students in the spring. And I, uh, I, I supervise and co-supervise a small number of PhD students. And I'm in a, I and my students are in a collaboration with astronomers and cosmologists at, at LBL, which Ryan Adams had also been involved with. Mm -hmm. um, so that's how I got to know Ryan uh, and become duly impressed by him. <laughs> um, over the years, I've done various kinds of academic service for the, for the department as well. So I have a, a kind of hybrid career, which, uh, which works well for me and I really enjoy. Yeah. So let's stay there for a moment. I think that there's been a lot of change, especially for machine learning as this relationship between machine learning and industry grows. Yes. You have done a lot of going back and forth and sort of living in the crux of that. Yeah. What do you think the lasting impact of this is? Where do we, where do you think we're going to see this sort of hybrid field mutate yeah. into, into the future? Yeah. I think there's there's a, probably good scenarios and bad scenarios, and I, I don't know for sure which will happen. I think the good scenario will be the, sort of the complementary appeal of industry and academia kind of get synthesized. Mm -hmm. Industry has actual problems, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in statistics, something that is very important to, to think about is whether the methods you're working on have any relevance at all to anybody's actual problem. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. would expect statisticians to be kind of foremost in the world right. at not working on problems that nobody cares about. The actual track record has been mixed. <laughs> yes, um, but yes. I think these days, I'm I, things have, in, in my view, really kind of improved over the last mm. 15 years. 
as uh, the statistics, the kind of mainstream statistics community has increasingly come to embrace the idea that, you know, we need to be looking at non-standard data sets Mm -hmm. and, you know, we need to get away from investing a lot of time in higher order asymptotics of linear methods and and really focus more on practical problems that that people really care about solving Mm -hmm. that involve uncertainty around kind of difficult puzzling questions. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's come up in your your podcast before, but there's a paper that Leo Bryman wrote in 2001 called The Two Cultures, which I think I encourage everyone to read it. It was, uh, you know, it had, it was a real landmark paper and mm. it, had a, it had a huge influence on me when I read it, which was in my first year hmm. of graduate school. But it essentially talks about what Leo called data modeling versus algorithmic modeling. Mm-hmm. You know, we might superficially call it kind of classical parametric statistics versus machine learning. Right. That's a, that's a, and, and, you know, he, he had a very strong opinion about which one uh, should be pursued and mattered and, mm-hmm. and, and which didn't. And it's a wonderful statistical science discussion paper, which mm-hmm. means there are, um, there's Leo's paper, then there are comments by luminaries, Brad Efron, David Cox. I mean, really, really significant influential statisticians and then Leo's rejoinder. Mm -hmm. So you can learn a tremendous amount about, at least about how people thought about this in 2001 by looking at that paper. Um, Do you think that that discussion is ongoing or, or have we sort of come to sort of a plateau in, in that discussion between statistics and machine learning? I think it's very much, very much ongoing, Mm. but as people come to focus on the idea of just really solving problems that people care about with the data that actually exists and working with all of it, et cetera, you start to see that there are distinctions without a difference mm-hmm. in, in some, in, in the way that people have been thinking about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all want to make kind of good decisions in the face of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. We want to do it in an evidence-based way. Terry Speed, who's another sort of giant in the field of statistics, he's a, a emeritus at, at Berkeley, has said, told me that, you know, in statistics, we have horses for courses, not one for all races. (laughs) You know, that that really means that you have to think about the problem Mm -hmm. and look at the methods that are plausible and try to match up the conditions for success of those methods Mm -hmm. with the actual conditions that prevail in the particular problem that you're looking at and, you know, use judgment. That's where judgment comes in, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There is human judgment everywhere in science. It doesn't matter what kind of science you do. And so uh, I think that the the more that we focus on sort of that idea, the the less it matters what name you call a certain method or whether it came from a kind of classical inferential tradition or whether it, you know, was worked out by the connectionist guys in the 80s right, I mean, right. everything everything is fair game and i think sort of along that path there's uh, a growing trend in machine learning to do collaborations and find data sets from other fields that are that are interesting to work on and as someone who's who's sort of worked with a lot of a variety of very different types of data what would be your advice for learning how to communicate with your collaborators who might not speak the same language that you do Right. One of the biggest lessons I've learned in having domain collaborators, which I have had a lot of, is they want to be helpful. So they will come in asking you to figure out how to apply a certain statistical method Mm -hmm. to their Mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. And almost inevitably, they they are asking the wrong question. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And so a a good thing to do is kind of stop that conversation Mm -hmm. and just ask them to Start from scratch, which is where you are as far as understanding their problem domain, and work forward to explain what it is they're trying to do, mm-hmm. right? And by the time you get there, I think you'll, you know, number one, you'll have had kind of the fun experience of uh, becoming an expert in a very narrow but very deep slice. This person's of, PhD question? Exactly. <laughs> um, and you'll have, uh, you know, you'll have a keen sense, actually, of what kinds of approaches are viable mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, whether you can really help this person and if so, how. Fisher, who was, you know, maybe the most recognized name of statistics in the 20th century, said that, yes, in, in, in many cases, you can't perform an analysis of an experiment, but only an autopsy. You can, mm-hmm. you can say what the experiment died of. <laughs> so um, it's Sadly, often the case that the statistician is is brought in well after the right. point where the statistician would have been the most useful, which is in discussing what the data right. should have been. Right. Uh, and and so, 
of course, in, in a lot of industrial machine learning applications, there's just an avalanche of data, and it's not really about a careful collection or, uh, of, of particular information, but mm-hmm. just kind of making sense of uh, this, this giant observational stream. Trying to find a lens for it as opposed to like change the fire hose. Right, exactly. Yeah. So tell me about what you're working on with your students in the astrology, Ast- astronomy. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, haven't gone there yet. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Tell <laughs> me about be... what you think about the stars being for our lives. Oh my God, sorry. It's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. So I have a collaborator named Prabhat. Uh, he's the head of data analytics at the Department of Energy's Supercomputing Center, which is at Lawrence Berkeley labs just up the hill from Berkeley. He and I and many other talented people have been thinking about the problem of analyzing uh, pictures of the sky that are taken by these very large-scale telescope surveys. So an example is something called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which was uh, done more than a decade ago, but, you know, it covered sort of 40% of the visible universe. And so the idea is to boil things down, imagine you have a hundred terabyte picture of Mm -hmm. 40% of the visible universe. And you want to go into that picture and identify every light source, Mm -hmm. its exact location in the sky, what kind of light source it is. It could be a star, it could be a galaxy, it could be a quasar. And then uh, all the characteristics Mm -hmm. of that light source. If it's a galaxy, what kind of galaxy is it? Uh, What redshift is it at? So how far away is it? And so that's that's called a catalog. And what we're interested in is running a kind of single inference job on the supercomputer at NERSC that will uh, generate a catalog from the entirety of uh, a sky survey or multiple sky surveys. Hmm. And so that's a that's a pretty large scale computing proposition. <laughs> yes, yes, yes um, putting it lightly. It's also it's a really suitable application for a, a hierarchical mm-hmm. probabilistic graphical model. Mm-hmm. So in the hierarchy there are at the top there are light sources. Uh, we don't know how many they are. We don't know their locations. We don't know whether each one is a star. So all those things are kind of latent, unobserved quantities. Mm-hmm. But conditional on how nature has produced all of those quantities, we get photons arriving at the CCDs of the cameras and the telescopes. Mm-hmm. And so the job, as usual, is to take the kind of a prior distribution on the characteristics of the light sources and the conditional distribution of what the pixels in the CCDs look like given those light sources and turn that whole thing around to get a posterior distribution Mm -hmm. over the characteristics of the light sources given the pixels. Nice. Excellent. Um, So doing it at scale is one challenge. And then just the dimensionality of the problem dictates that you can't do exact inference. Uh, So a lot of your listeners will know that to work with a posterior distribution in a model that has latent and observed variables, you need to be able to integrate the latent variables out of the joint distribution of the latent and observes. And essentially, we we can't do sort of high dimensional integrals exactly mm-hmm. um, because of the exponential computing cost, the sort of lack of closed form of many of these integrals. And so we have to resort to approximations. Mm. And then the familiar ones are called Markov chain Monte Carlo, mm-hmm. and then a family of tools called variational inference. And so in our collaboration, Ryan and his students had been focusing on MCMC mm-hmm. approaches uh, to to approximate inference in this setup for building a catalog. And uh, on, on the West Coast, my students and I had been focusing on variational. And so we've uh, made, over the last couple of years, made a lot of progress. We're getting close to the point of actually generating a complete catalog from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Wow. Um, it will have hundreds of millions of distinct entries in it. And, you know, we've been communicating naturally with the sort of cosmologists uh, and astronomers and astrophysicists at, at LBL and their colleagues mm-hmm. about what it is exactly they want to know about this catalog, what kinds of uncertainty quantities in the catalog are most relevant to them, how we can make this catalog available in a standard way. It turns out that up to now, there really hasn't been a single unified catalog generated from any of the sky surveys that wow. have been done. The astronomy community will take you know, sort of the set of images that cover a certain region of the sky that mm-hmm. they're interested in, and there have been analyses run on each individual image. Mm. So they will go and look at those analyses and kind of manually curate them into a catalog for that region of the sky. Like no comprehensive find, No comprehensive single standardized oh. catalog has really ever been produced. So we're hoping to 
move the that community just in the direction of even having that as as a resource um, and and trying to integrate across uh, multiple sky surveys because there are you know there it's now the case that many regions of the sky have been imaged multiple times by multiple mm. different instruments mm -hmm. and there has not been a kind of unified analysis of all those different images into a single consistent catalog of light sources. Hmm. So where do you think the roadblock is there? Computing power or just having the hardware and the sort of backing for a project that would be able to get you the raw information that you need? Uh, I think that it, it's actually a pretty difficult statistical inference problem because of the scale, because of the need to do approximate inference in order to apply kind of realistic models that, that are actually going to do a competitive job mm -hmm. of identifying things. And so there just hasn't been sustained attention by a, a group of people who are kind of up to speed on contemporary data analysis working with the domain experts. Uh, that's that's kind of the thing that we're trying to change. Mm -hmm. So what other questions are you excited about with the students you're working on and your other collaborators? Oh, well, um, there's, uh, you may have heard of deep learning. It's... Oh, no, tell me about it. <laughs> tell me about this thing called deep learning. My... Uh, my student, Jeff, came in to one of our weekly meetings and he had gone deep. He, uh, <laughs> it's he, hard to bring them back from that. I know. Yeah, he, he may never come back. But <laughs> he's, uh, you know, so one of the things uh, kind of inside the problem of doing catalog inference is the problem of sort of modeling different kinds of galaxies. Mm -hmm. So you can, if you are lucky enough, let's say, just to see a galaxy in frontal pose, mm -hmm. so it's not rotated with respect to you in any way, then there's kind of a, there's, there's a whole morphology of different galaxy types. The, the, there's something called the Hubble tuning fork. Uh, and so it's of interest to take the pixels in an image of a galaxy that's in frontal pose and sort of understand where it lives in this morphology mm -hmm. or to kind of do unsupervised learning and just find a, a, a reduced dimension space where galaxies of similar morphology are close together. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. You may know the, you know, the recent Kingman and Welling work on variational autoencoders. Uh, and so Jeff uh, spent, you know, some time and, and some energy in getting that to work on a, a, this curated collection of galaxy images. Uh, and it works really spectacularly well. Not uncommon experience in these matters when it comes to image processing. And so, you know, that's led us to, and, and Jeff in particular, to contemplate how, how can we kind of integrate some of these deep network type ideas into what for up to now had been a parametric mm -hmm. probabilistic graphical model that we right. were using to do the catalog inference. One of the outcomes of the work that we did was kind of the determination that the, the piece of that model that did the parametric characterization of galaxies mm -hmm. was probably one of the weak links mm. in terms of our ability to do catalog inference hmm. well. And that's what motivated Jeff to look at this variational autoencoder. Hey. It, it worked so well that he's been thinking a lot now about how you can take that highly non-parametric analysis mm -hmm. and try to put it together inside other parts of our model, which is called Celeste, that are sort of the relatively straightforward parametric approaches is perfectly adequate. And so there's a there's a kind of a blending of two different approaches in what will ultimately be a very large scale problem. So tell me a little bit about more about Volion and what questions you're interested in asking and using machine learning to answer there. Sure. You know, kind of the organizing premise, as I talked about earlier, of, of the company was that, you know, we could have a, a competitive advantage in running kind of fully automated investment strategies if we embraced contemporary statistical prediction and statistical machine learning methods from the outset. Sounds like a good hunch. Yeah. So <laughs> broadly speaking, what we're doing is running what are called market neutral investment strategies. And, and that means that the performance of the strategies is not correlated with the directions of overall market mm. movement. So mm -hmm. if the Dow Jones is up or down or whatever, that's generally not informative about what our performance would be mm -hmm. over the same time period. Mm -hmm. That's a relatively easy decorrelation to accomplish. I don't have time to get into the details, but it can be done. The The biggest hurdle that you face is the, is the problem of predicting how security prices are going to behave f starting right now into the future. And, you know, I think that this is the you know, probably the lowest signal to noise ratio problem that anyone seriously attempts to solve mm -hmm. on a regular basis mm -hmm. in the world. And a lot of very talented people are trying to solve it. And so we're working hard to build a, a, a research staff and, and a software staff that sort of love applied problems mm -hmm. uh, and are 
sort of well-versed in machine learning or at least uh, believe strongly that uh, machine learning techniques uh, have the kind of right characteristics to, to solve these prediction problems. Mm-hmm. And then once you have, if you're able to produce predictions that, that have some accuracy, then you need to decide how to turn those predictions into decisions about forming portfolios, mm-hmm. so collections of the securities that, that will increase in value in a stable way over time. So mm-hmm. there's a kind of separate optimization and decision-making process that, that comes along with it. And so there's uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that running a running a systematic strategy is a, is really a microcosm of all of applied statistics. Mm. I can't think of a part, a uh, subdomain of statistics that uh, isn't kind of implicated in some way. Uh, design of experiments, sequential decision making, prediction problems. Unfortunately, in some cases, even causal inference, we have to worry about causal inference problems, mm-hmm. which are really the most difficult problems that there are. And so, you know, we have. From the outside, it looks pretty familiar, I think, to a machine learning practitioner. We have hmm. a very large amount of data, diverse so-called multimodal or mm-hmm. heterogeneous data. We are, you know, we are not focused on putting large interpretability constraints on prediction rules. Uh, it doesn't mean we don't understand what's happening, but you know, it does mean that we don't have a predisposition towards very mm-hmm. simple parametric mm-hmm. modeling. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for people who are Curious about how securities markets work and excited about working on really difficult problems with talented colleagues who really understand how to make contemporary machine learning techniques work in practice at scale in a robust way. Um, it's a, you know, it's a great environment. Yeah. So I think, I feel like anything having to do with finance is one of the biggest fire hoses of data that there is available to work with. How have you seen Mm -hmm. just availability of computing power and just basic resources to tackle that change over the course of working with Folion? Well, I, you know, I, I did this even back in 1995 and, you know, let me tell you, things are not (laughs) the way they are now. Um, you know, I think it, it was the, the onset of the general purpose GPU mm. as uh, as an accelerator for you know let's say linear algebra mm-hmm. etc. That was that was only just beginning to happen in 2007, mm-hmm. uh, and you know where it is now. So that kind of happened uh, over the over the lifetime of the company, and so another big development obviously has been cloud infrastructure, mm-hmm. which I think has mattered a lot in the technology industry. For, for a lot of reasons related to confidentiality and, and privacy, it's it's harder for us to take mm-hmm. advantage of that. Mm-hmm. We tend to do everything on premises. Yeah, I mean, the exponential drop in, in the cost of linear algebraic operations per second has had a, a big effect on us like it has on everybody else. Excellent, John. Thank you so much. This sure. is great. Excellent. John McAuliffe of Volion. Really fascinating to be able to talk with him. Well, that's it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode.